Welcome to the Inside Scoop Live podcast, where indie authors get personal about their books, their writing, and their passions. I'm your host, Sherry Hoyt. Join me for some lively conversations with debut indie authors and seasoned veterans alike. It's a great place to find your next amazing read or even get inspired. So sit back and enjoy the show and let me know what you think. Hey everyone, welcome back to Inside Scoop Live. Today I'm talking with Kevin Kunkel, author of The World We Choose. It's a book that teaches children that the world is mostly improving and that the way to make sure it stays that way is to continue to pay attention to the good all around us. Before we get started, here's the inside scoop on Kevin. Kevin Kunkel believes people are fundamentally good and altruistic. He writes books to reflect that belief. Kevin fully intends to fix the screen door this spring or by fall at the latest. Kevin writes bios in the third person because it comes off as more professional and writing in the fifth person gets confusing. Kevin lives in Minnesota with his wife and two sons He complains that Hollywood movies just don't understand real cold. For more information about Kevin Kunkel and his work, visit his website at kevinkunkelauthor.com. Well, hi, Kevin. Welcome to Inside Scoop Live. Hi, thanks for having me. So I want to talk about your book, of course, but before we get started, I have to pass along congratulations to you on your recent literary awards with Reader Views. And for listeners, I'm just going to go over a few of the awards that he won. His book, The World We Choose, took home the following awards from the Reader Views Literary Awards. Uh, the Book by Book Award for Best Children's Book. The Reader Views Kids Award for Best Children's Book of the Year. The Reader Views Gold Choice Awards for Preschool Toddler Category. The Gold Award in the Regional Midwest Category. And the Barefoot Librarian Book Award. Wow! <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I'm incredibly proud and it's humbling to even be considered and just something that I didn't think would necessarily occur, but very happy to have had it happen. Yeah, that's an amazing start for your first children's book. So congratulations. And I guess with that intro, can you tell us a little bit about The World We Choose? What is it about? Yeah, The World We Choose is an argument for optimism. It's a little bit strange, perhaps, to describe a children's book as an argument, but that really was the intent that I had when I sat down and wrote that first draft. But the story really takes us through the eyes of our protagonist, and she's unnamed in the book, but the illustrator and I were calling her Hazel through the process. Mm. And we followed her kind of through a day in her life, She starts out seeing some of the bad things on the news, kind of looking at the TV and and watching the news feed as it runs during the day and and then turning and looking outside of the house and, and into the world around her and kind of being surrounded by all of the positive things about our planet. Mm. So the world we choose, I wrote it in the hopes that children will know that a better world is worth fighting for and that the big picture of our planet is mostly positive. Yeah, I love that storyline. And, you know, it's perfect for children because they're positive by nature. So, you know, this kind of just reinforces it for them. Yeah, I think a lot of the media we're bombarded with tries to cut that optimism down oftentimes. And some of that is just kind of the model of, 
news and a necessity, but certainly trying to introduce the idea early was the intent to remind folks that we should just keep that positivity in mind all the time. Yeah, yeah. So it's a good lesson for kids. And, and also, it's a good reminder for the parents reading this book to their children. Yeah, that was another benefit and thought in the process was that this is as much for parents as it is for the kids. So what inspired you to actually sit down and, and write this story? Let's see. My wife and I were living in San Diego and had a pretty awesome setup there and talked through it and decided that it made sense for us to move back to the Midwest to be closer to family, mm. Minnesota specifically, and that's where I grew up. She grew up in Wisconsin. So we kind of left our awesome jobs and awesome setup and moved back to the Midwest to have kids, I guess, was the ultimate intent. <laughs> Didn't plan on having children necessarily immediately, but actually, as we arrived and as we were moving into the place we were renting, um, we'd been moving all day. I had fallen asleep on a chair that we had set down and my wife like tapped me on the chest to wake me up and looked me in the eyes and she says, Kevin, I'm pregnant and was very scared. <laughs> and my immediate response was joy. And then I think I got scared like two days later when I kind of let the gravity of it set in. Yeah. And I started to think about what I wanted to tell my child, the first thing that I wanted to read to my child. And I thought quite a bit about it and realized that the very first thing that I wanted uh, him to know, he was, he, Quentin is his name now, was that the world is good and getting better. Hmm. And so that's the very first thing I wrote on a piece of paper was, hello, the world is good and getting better every day. Aww. Yeah. I wrote it out then a number of lines of prose and kind of filled in additional pieces and facts and kind of reasons to support that. And then 20-ish drafts later, I think I had switched it to a rhyme to verse to have it rhyme mm -hmm. and had really concluded the story then at that point. And I started reading it to my son while he was still in the womb. I would uh, like park my mouth next to my wife's stomach and uh, <laughs> read through. Um, went down through the publishing process. He was born well before the book came out. Actually, by the time the book came out, I have another boy. Uh, ben was born in March of 2020, and the book came out in July of, this, of 2020. Wow. I love that story. How sweet. Now, you mentioned that you switched it from prose to rhyme. What motivated you to write in rhyme? I guess I've always really liked rhyme and been drawn to it. And I guess as I was getting critiques on the prose version, it was eliciting emotion from the people that I was reading it to. And I decided to try it in rhyme just to see how it would go. And I think it elicited more emotion. People really felt touched. I think the end of the book in particular, when it kind of puts it back to the reader and calls out people like me, that that was just a really touching moment for people. And I could tell that the rhyme was more impactful. Mm, okay. So it sounds incredibly difficult to me to rhyme. So how did you learn how to rhyme? Well, trial and error, I guess. 
I like to think that I have always had an ear for it. I don't know that that's 100% true. <laughs> but, uh, you know, I think that a number of people can intuitively get close to getting the correct meter, like the rhythm of the words. Mm -hmm. But I think to get it exactly right requires that you dig into it and kind of break everything up syllable by syllable. And at first that was pretty intimidating to me. And I actually vividly recall maybe ninth grade English, my English teacher insisting that Shakespeare wrote in iambic pentameter. Mm -hmm. And I insisted that that didn't mean anything. And that's not true. That <laughs> words didn't actually have stress and unstressed syllables. And I think at the time, I just didn't have great examples of where a stress or unstressed syllable might lie. And then now having dug into the process and working on other books, have discovered it very much is real and that it, it takes quite a while to get a knack for it. Yeah. Uh, but once you do, you can almost tell the meter or the rhythm of something that you're reading in real time. Hmm. Yeah, I, I would imagine, especially, you know, different countries have different pronunciations. So I'm sure it can be kind of tricky. Yeah, well, the dialect comes into play for sure. I've kind of got the Midwest, upper Midwest tone and intonation to things, and that can change things. I visit howmanysyllables.com. I live on that website, and it breaks up the stress and unstressed part of syllables. And they have a suggestion box where you can say, like, I don't agree with your assessment of this word. And I feel that out all the time. I've never actually heard back. But um, <laughs> I was just arguing that I don't know that fire is a – it's listed as a one-syllable word, and I guess I can see that. But I think in colloquial speech, it comes off as two syllables, fire. Fire, yeah. Huh, that's interesting. There's a tool for everything out there these days. Yeah, uh, uh, without it, I don't know. I don't know how people used to write in rhyme, but it it kind of boggles my mind thinking back to, I guess, anybody who wrote in that and didn't have those sort of resources. It requires an incredible command of the language. Right, right, yeah. You said you wrote the story in prose and then kind of flipped it to rhyme. Is that the process or is that just how you did this one book? That's how I did this book. I then started on another book, and I didn't write out the story in prose ahead of time. Mm -hmm. And I spent a tremendous amount of time on it, and then I realized that the rhyme was leading me around. It was sort of the tail wagging the dog. And I think that it only takes kind of spending a lot of time on something and realizing that the rhyme is dictating where you're taking the story to know that it really makes sense to know, have a pretty good outline of where you're going before you actually put pen to paper on the rhyming portions of it. Yeah, because it's not like writing a novel where you can let a character take the lead and kind of dictate where the story goes. But uh, I imagine writing in rhyme, you kind of do need to know which way the story's going to go because that way you have some idea of what kind of words you're going to need to use. Otherwise, it's not going to yeah. work. Yeah. Yes, it helps to look ahead too, especially if you have nouns that you think you're going to need to repeat. And you can make efforts to avoid rhyming with a specific word. Mm. I, I have a manuscript in process. It's an argument against trickle-down economics, which is kind of lofty, I guess, for a children's book. But theoretically, <laughs> it's a standalone story about monkeys and bananas. And the word 
monkey doesn't really rhyme with anything except funky and the word banana doesn't really rhyme with anything except like cabana and some words that aren't necessarily that useful. Mm. So I've had to work pretty hard to avoid those being words that you use at the end of a stanza and need to rhyme with. Okay. Wow. So aside from rhyming, what is the most challenging aspect of writing for young children? I think finding something that's going to resonate with a child, making sure that the story isn't one that is purely adult, but that takes the innocence and uh, maybe naivety of a child, but also respects their intellect. It's kind of that balance of knowing that emotionally a a child is probably quite developed in a lot of ways, Mm -hmm. but maybe just doesn't have all of the systems in place and to kind of understand how the world is working. So, uh, yeah, I, I think finding a story that, that would truly interest a child but not be demeaning at the same time. Right. Yeah, you definitely cannot be condescending because they pick up on that right away. So. <laughs> yeah, immediately. Well, gosh, my, uh, my three-year-old, we've gotten to that stage where if you're talking about him to somebody else, he understands that that's the subject and doesn't like the content, no matter what you're saying, even if it's nice things. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Three years old. Wow. That's funny. Don't talk about me or, hey, I'm here. <laughs> yeah, that's that, right. That's definitely the tone that we get from him. <laughs> <laughs> that's funny. So, Now, your illustrations are beautiful, magnificent. How, how did you find your illustrator? Uh, got connected through the publisher, uh, oh. and I had a little bit of input in the process. So they have a number of illustrators that they work with and they kind of give you a portfolio to peruse and select from. And Melissa was my first choice, Melissa's favorite from the menu. And I was very excited to find she was also interested in the project and and was willing to do it because of course they have the right to say, nah, this isn't a book that makes sense for me. Right. And the warmth that I saw in character she had already done was really what I wanted to be a part of this book was to just get uh, a smile and a sense of wonder and awe into our protagonist. And I think she achieved that beautifully and so really pleased with the images as well. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So did you have a lot of input or did you kind of just let her take your storyline where she visioned? Uh, I had a lot of input and then she immediately had a all better ideas than everything I had suggested. And I was like, okay, I'll just be quiet now and let you uh, take the wheel because I don't know what I'm talking about. And I'm sure what you will do is much better. And and so glad that I did that and um, had the foresight to understand that she's just very talented. And my original vision was because it's a big picture view of the world was that we would jump around to a bunch of different on the planet and then sort of zoom out and get this big picture, almost map-like view of everything that we had just looked at. Mm -hmm. And she understood that there needs to be a protagonist, a child that the reader can identify with and that it needs to tell a story with the visuals as much as the words. The writing itself doesn't name 
an actual character. And so she knew that that needed to be interjected when she put together the images. Yeah, the pictures often tell their own story or expand upon the story that is written. So she did a fabulous job. Yeah, it brought tears to my eyes when I saw the spread of the, there's a protest scene early on in the book, kind of as she's looking out the window. And that, that still is my favorite image from the book. And it was so gratifying and incredible to see that for the first time. Mm, I bet. Aw. So what is the most important message you hope that your young readers take away from reading The World We Choose? Well, I hope that that attitude of optimism gets instilled early and sticks with them, because I think the world has a way of eroding that. And particularly, I had concerns when I decided to write the first draft of the book to share the message with my son. I was specifically worried about seeing things on cable news, which the business model is to kind of sensationalize and and discuss all those bad things. And there's value there, too, in, in hearing all of that. But then also uh, social media feeds were concerning to me because they kind of sensationalize that controversy and make it difficult. They don't necessarily elevate the positive things in the world. Right. And the very best stories about our planet are non-events in a lot of ways. The very first argument that I put in the prose version, and it's the very first item that's really expounded upon in the book is that argument that there's actually less violence on the planet today than there was in the past. Mm. And that sort of factoid, I think, is not something you can report about in the news. You don't get in front of a broadcast and say, there continues to be less violence today than there was 100 years ago, 300 years ago, and just repeat that every day. Instead, we get the opposite. We hear the anecdote of the violence that's out there. And and I don't mean to diminish anybody's experience, right? There is absolutely troubling things that happen every day. And the book acknowledges that as well. Mm -hmm. But if we focus on those things, if that's all that we can think about, then we're not going to fight to beat those things because we'll believe it can't be done. So that was really the intent. Uh, And the main takeaway that I guess I want is to not let the news and your social media feed make you cynical. And so it's a pre-argument before kids will even be encountering that. I didn't know when my son would first see the news on the TV or be exposed to social media, but I thought if that attitude was instilled beforehand, then maybe then he resists that urge. Yeah, absolutely. So are you writing full-time or do you have an outside job as well? Oh yeah. I would love to be writing full-time. I, in, uh, Times that I am not writing or parenting, I configure electronic chemotherapy regimens. Oh, wow. It is uh, every bit as not exciting as it just sounded there, I think. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, It's sort of tedious and you know you're doing some good on the back end, but it's also a little bit hard because you don't necessarily have any interaction with the people that are benefiting from the chemotherapy that they're receiving. Now, you don't have to see the, the sad stories either, but uh, yeah, working with oncology staff every day, and, and I've been doing that for about a decade. Mm. So it sounds like writing is a nice kind of artistic contrast to what you do during the day. Yeah, I, you know, I think I always 
wanted to have a creative life from when I was very young. And I think I, I kind of got scared out of pursuing that maybe as aggressively as I could have or should have. Mm-hmm. And realized when we moved back to Minnesota, actually, that I really wanted to inject some creativity back into my life and and potentially pursue that full time and ramp up how often I'm able to do the creative work. So it's a great release now. And who knows, I'm hopeful that I can turn it into something that's full time and leave the chemotherapy template configuration for someone else. Yeah. This isn't your first creative venture, though. You used to be a stand-up comedian. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah. I was in college studying abroad. I lived in Bangkok, Thailand for six months. Mm. And I was watching a stand-up comedian on television there and realized that or believed, and perhaps arrogantly, I think that one theme about me is I see something that somebody else has done and decide that it must be easy. Mm -hmm. And of course, that's never true. And you're like immediately brought back to earth and like, oh, no, actually, this is super hard. And there's a reason that people talk about this being challenging. (laughs) But I sort of arrogantly believed that I could do stand up comedy. And I resolved that I would try that when I got back to the States. And kind of as soon as I returned back to school at the University of Wisconsin. I went down to the open mic at the comedy club on State Street in Madison, Wisconsin, and gave it a go. Uh, It didn't go well the first time or the second time or probably the fifth time, but I stuck with it. And eventually I feel like I got pretty good at it. I was proud of what I had done and was able to perform at a few different places, made a little bit of money. Uh, it was never uh, something that supported me full-time. I think people who do it for years struggled. You know, it's a tough lifestyle and a tough gig. But, yeah. but I performed regularly for about four years and really enjoyed that and made some great friends and had some great memories and did some things I'm pretty proud of. Wow. That's amazing to me. I, I love that. So you're a people person, I guess. Uh, yeah, I think so. I think so. Mm-hmm. I think a lot of people would agree with that. The thing to remember about stand-up comedy, if it's something that ever interests you, is that the worst case scenario is that you stand up in front of a crowd and people don't laugh at you. Right. And I think it's, it was thinking through that that made me realize, like, oh, you might as well try this because standing in front of a room and having people not laugh isn't nearly as intimidating as feeling like everyone's laughing at you, maybe. Well, that's a good point. I never thought of it that way before. So what are you working on now? You mentioned you had a few projects going on. Yeah, I've got four books in the works. The advice I guess that I've received is work on a bunch of different things and just dip your toe into something for a while and then set it down and come back to it. Hmm. So I have two writing manuscripts that I've been working on for a very long time. Uh, Maybe not that long, I guess in, in the book world, a lot of times people are working on books for like a decade. But I've been plugging away at the rhyme of one manuscript for going on three years. Uh, It's a Thanksgiving-themed book. It's not that similar to The World We Choose. It's really more of a classic children's book. We've got a protagonist and conflict and fun rhymes, and it's kind of a big food fight sort of (laughs) deal and should theoretically be pretty funny and entertaining. Uh, I had already mentioned earlier the monkeys and bananas story that's kind of a 
allegory for trickle-down economics. And that's also kind of a classic children's book approach. I think people who have read it kind of get Yurgle the Turtle vibes a little bit of. Oh, okay. Yeah, uh, yeah. Yeah. And then a, a couple of a, a non-rhyming story about sort of being present, but that's also supposed to be pretty funny and maybe a little bit weird. It's a little bit like uh, Kafka's Metamorphosis, maybe, which mm-hmm. is kind of high-minded maybe for kids. But uh, I think just the idea that you're thrown into a bizarre world, you wake up and everything is different. Sounds like you're going to be busy. Yeah, and plugging away at those manuscripts and working on critiques and uh, submitting those different pieces of work and just trying to get better at writing each day so that I can be a full-time writer. I really like this children's book format. When I was doing stand-up comedy, I felt like I was a comedian that was forced into the stand-up art form Mm. because it's so accessible. You can get up on the stage and just grab a microphone and that's really all that you need. You don't even necessarily need a mic, right? And because they'll take anybody at an open mic, it was something I didn't need to collaborate on. You don't need any money. There's no startup costs or or those barriers are pretty low. Mm -hmm. And that's why I jumped into it. And I really enjoyed the comedy part of it, but I just, I'm not sure that stand-up was the right format for me. Even though I guess I, I stopped doing it because of the lifestyle it requires it's just a lot of really late nights at the comedy club and that's kind of an unhealthy yeah approach to living but but this children's book format's been wonderful i think it fits me and suits me quite well Well, that's exciting so it sounds like you've got a lot of projects in the works and it sounds like uh you know what maybe a year from now or so you will be full time who knows right uh yeah who knows what when that happens uh again when i have the chance to leave behind the hospital it world that'll be uh, a fun moment. And if that doesn't happen, then that's okay too. I, I guess one benefit of the work I'm doing currently is I know it's helpful to people whether they realize it or not. So. Right, right. Was there one thing about the whole process that surprised you? Uh, yeah, that's a great question. Two things, I think. How long everything takes was surprising to me. I didn't realize that from the moment that the manuscript is done, that you are still multiple years away from hitting the shelves in most circumstances. Mm-hmm. That kind of shocked me. I didn't realize all of the moving pieces and why that takes so long, but it's for a lot of good reasons primarily. So yeah. that was one surprise. And then the other thing that I didn't know specifically about children's books was the entire design portion of it. So the laying out of words. I had never really thought through where the words show up on the page the font that gets used, how they interact or don't interact with the illustration. And that's an entire art form unto itself that I was completely unaware of. And then once somebody brings it to your attention, you start seeing it in picture books and you start understanding how the positioning of the words, how the fonts, how the size change the book in its entirety and add a different layer to the art. Yeah, was a, a really neat thing to see. And, and now I enjoy looking for that in the books that I read. Yeah, yeah. And there's, what is it, like a 32-page template that you've used to format your story? Yeah, that surprised me too. I didn't realize that, that just about every picture book is 32 pages. And that's a printing practical element to it. But what's kind of, somebody said that early on in a class that I took, that just about every picture book is 32 pages. And I was 
like shocked and in disbelief and went to my son's bookshelf and pulled all of the books and started counting the pages. And <laughs> <laughs> so based on your experience, what kind of advice would you give to aspiring children's book authors? I would say focusing on the writing and the process and not letting the other pieces worry you or concern you. It took me a while to really decide that I was going to follow my dream of living a creative life. Mm -hmm. I sort of deferred that dream when I got into this hospital IT world and gave up on stand-up comedy again because of the lifestyle, but didn't really fill that void in a meaningful way. And I wish I had kept creativity as a part of my life in a more concrete and disciplined way. Mm -hmm. And now I think pursuing that creativity just systematic, not systematically, I guess that sounds pretty robotic, but with purpose and with dedicated time and then focusing on the writing and not worrying about the other aspects. Because I think ultimately if writing is the heart of what you do, then that needs to be the center of what you're doing. And all of those other pieces, the social media, the understanding publishing, the learning of the industry, that would come in time, but starting with the words. Yeah. Okay. Well, that makes sense. Yeah. And don't get overwhelmed by the rest of it. It'll happen. Kevin, is there anything else you wanted to share today? This is kind of an odd bone to pick perhaps, but I think that one's response to the book, specifically the world we choose that I didn't expect and that I've thought a lot about is the very first argument that I make that the world is less violent than it used to be in the past. I think a number of people have brought that up and said, well, I don't think that that's true. Mm. And again, I mentioned earlier, I don't want to diminish from anybody's individual experience. And I try to stay up on world events and I'm well aware of some of the conflict that's going on in there's troubling things in Burma and North Ethiopia right now, and that's not to mention Syria and all of these areas where there's conflict and war, and that doesn't mention the strife at home and, and violence at home. Yeah. But, you know, I hope that the book reminds people of the big picture. I looked to Steven Pinker is the author. He wrote The Better Angels of Our Nature. Mm-hmm. The book came out a number of years ago, but it's sort of that long academic argument about how violence has declined. And since then there have been some rebuttals that the actual number of violent incidents has stayed somewhat flat, Mm -hmm. but that is in the face of a growing population. And so I think that I agree with the argument presented in the book that, that that matters to people and that if, if we have 7 billion people on the planet and the violence that we have is similar to how much there was when there was 1 billion people on the planet, that that is a good thing, that that's a net gain. Mm -hmm. And I guess I just hope that when people see the book, they don't think that I believe the world is all roses. I wrote the book because I was feeling anxious about things I was seeing on the news and because I was worried my son would have the same anxiety. Right, right. Uh, But I keep coming back to that big picture story, and that's the story that I wanted to tell, and that's the story that I try to live every day, and and I have to remind myself from time to time because we know that 
we're going to see something in the news today or tomorrow or the next day that's going to be saddening and, and hard to process. And, and hopefully we can focus on the roses and remember that the thorns are a requirement to get to those flowers. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, having children just kind of changes your perspective on everything, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah, it really has been. Uh, becoming a father has been everything I had hoped for and more. It's really been great. Kevin, I just wanted to thank you so much for joining me today on Inside Scoop Live and sharing a little bit about yourself and your work. Thank you so much for having me. This has been fantastic. Thank you for joining me today on Inside Scoop Live for my interview with Kevin Kunkel. For more information about Kevin and his work, visit his website at kevinkunkelauthor.com. And be sure to check out our other interviews at insidescooplive.com. 